I set up the, uh, the readings for Lectio Divina quite some time ago during last summer, and I um, didn't particularly plan them to fit with any festival or any day in the liturgical life of the church. And in this year, we have been looking at uh, people in the Old Testament, important figures in the Old Testament. In fact, when I set out to plan this year, I started from Genesis and started moving through it, and I've only gotten really partway through the Old Testament with some very important passages dealing with people in the Old Testament. So this evening, this uh, uh, Lectio Divina is uh, on the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, and it's a very famous uh, story and a very important lesson for us uh, about how to live, how to deal with the reality of sin, the next passage, uh, when it's about David's sin with Bathsheba and also murdering Uriah the Hittite, and it is in the next chapter, the next section, where Nathan then challenges him for this uh, sin. Um, so that's what the passage is tonight. It's about the sin of David. It's remarkable that it's in the Bible because David, obviously, as the one who is the great king, is the one who is the anointed one the one who is the hope of his people. In every other way, he's seen to be a, a noble and wonderful person. And yet here they had the courage, you might say, the honesty uh, to uh, speak of his sinfulness, not only his lust, but his anger and his deceitfulness and his, uh, the way in which he treated uh, the honorable Uriah. So it's, it's important for us. It's important to see how even a good person can go wrong and maybe to learn a little bit how that happens because we can always learn a bit from that. Whenever we, we read the passages in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's not uh, simply to teach us uh, a beautiful thing to put on a, maybe a poster and put on the wall, but it's something that may often teach us about the good and the bad and the ugly, about the whole of life. For the sacred scriptures are meant to not only inspire us with beautiful thoughts, but to strip away illusion and help us see ourselves. And that's a grace and a blessing. And that's also what we find in the Psalms. So here is a, a, an instance of the reality of sin, which is about as it's in many ways, looking at the dynamics of sin, it's uh, in many ways almost as fruitful as Genesis chapter three with Adam and Eve in the garden, where we see the dynamics of, of the way we can turn away from the Lord. And so let's pray as we listen to this. Um, what does it say to my head, my heart, and my hands? How does it help me to understand God and understand myself? The very last line is the only line we see God saying, he did not agree with what David was doing. That's a good thing for us to remember too, when we're trying to behave this dishonorable way like David. What does it say to us as we reflect upon our need for forgiveness? And what does it teach us about how we should, I guess you might say, avoid the near occasions of sin? Uh, there's a passage, not a scriptural passage, which I think may, many ways sums up this, this portion of the word of God. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And so just watch how this just all falls apart. And then let's look at our own lives and see how either in terms of the particular sins that David's dealing with or in the other sins we face in our life, if we can learn a little something from this and uh, become a bit more uh, wise in the way in which we respond to temptations. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God, I ask you to help, help each one of us. Come into our hearts. Forgive us the sins which block our understanding. Let there be a pathway to our hearts. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As I hear these words, which speak of much that is the dark side of human life and motivation, may I be drawn to repentance. May I be honest in my own understanding of how I can turn away from you and forgive me as I do. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And help me to listen attentively with an open ear and an open heart to see what you're saying to me in my own situation in this life. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites to besiege Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. As it happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking upon the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am with child. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people fared and how the war prospered. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him 
that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite was slain also. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king as anger arises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shout, they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesha? Did not a woman cast an, an upper millstone upon him from the wall so that he died at, at Tebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Oh, thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack upon the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she made lamentation for her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So David remained at Jerusalem. He should have been there with his troops in the field. They were out there doing their duty. But David remained in Jerusalem. He would not go forth with them to share their danger. In this he appears as we see Uriah's fidelity just a short time from now. He does not appear very good when compared to Uriah the Hittite. He's put himself in a position where he's beginning to slack off. He is the great king, and so he stays back lounging around at the palace in Jerusalem. And when we turn away from our duties, and when we let our life in general go slack, we can be sure that something not very good is around the corner. We need to be diligent, active, engaged in our mission in life. The mission of David was to be the leader of his people, but he had begun to become complacent. He stayed back. They were out in the field, but David was at his palace in Jerusalem. That's the first stage in what happens to David. He was led into temptation because he was in a place he should not have been. He should have been out there with the warriors doing his duty as a king. So maybe let's just think of the ways in which we ourselves, we set ourselves up 
for whatever. This is a particular sin, but whatever sins we can get caught up in. This is why we very wisely say in the act of contrition that we will avoid the near occasions of sin. It's not enough just to deal with it when it happens. We should not put ourselves in whatever it might be, whether it's pride, anger, envy, greed, laziness, lust, gluttony, whatever it is, whatever might put us in danger, the occasions of sin. And slacking off and not doing our duty is a very good way of putting ourselves in that danger. Let's pray we don't make the mistake David did. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking up on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. You might say he should not have been looking over, peering over his, uh, the roof, but that first element of temptation is simply the beginning. Each person, when we are in a position which we may not, maybe should not be in, of being at an occasion of sin, uh, that simple seeing, the simple beginning of the temptation is not itself a sin, although maybe we're dangerously leading ourselves into it. But he sees Bathsheba. And then he begins to go further. It's just like uh, in the Garden of Eden, where you see the fruit on the tree and are attracted to it, then reaching out is where the sin happens. It doesn't take much. And David sent and inquired about the woman. So he moves another step closer. He's beginning to inquire about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he's now begun beginning to dabble in this, beginning to find a way, and we know where he's going. And we don't know how much he's fooling himself. You know, we can sort of, just like in the Garden of Eden with the, the temptation, this just goes so all kinds of rationalization can lead one step after another. And he's certainly doing that. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. So it didn't take long after that. And this is something that perhaps is a, a lesson for us, and again, whatever our particular temptations may be, it might be of different kinds, not necessarily this one. We're, la we're slacking off. We put ourselves in a situation where we know we're likely to be tempted. Then we begin to start drifting, and then one step after another until finally we act. That's the kind of tendency that we can easily get into. So I often thought over the years in terms of, you know, in, in time I've been spent in confession and, you know, as a confessor uh, giving spiritual advice to, to how to deal with, with sin, um, it's important not to wait till the last minute. I think all of us can learn from that. And don't wait till you're finally just at the, you know, the slippery slope, you're at the bottom of the hill, then you think, I think I'm going to stop. No, uh, we have to begin much earlier. And David could have begun by getting out to battle and doing his duty the way uh, an ancient king should have. But 
one step after another, he slides along, and we don't know how conscious he was of it. I remember hearing a story, and I, I forget where I read it. It's about General MacArthur. And when he was, he got to Australia, and apparently he said to one of the generals there, he said, we will fight the enemy in the streets of our capital. And he said, well, I don't intend to fight them in the streets of your capital. I'm gonna fight them a thousand miles away in the islands in the Pacific. I think we can learn from that, and maybe David could have learned from that. Don't go step by step until it's just too late. We shouldn't expect that we have the willpower after that point. So there, we're about a paragraph into the story and he's already committed one sin, but not the last of his sins. One thing leads to another. And she returned to her home and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am with child. You can imagine his reaction at that point. And she says, I am with child. So now he begins to move from the sin of passion, adultery that he has committed. Now he tries to find a way of covering it up. And the first way to cover it up is to make it look as if this child is Uriah's child. But Uriah is not there. He's off in the, the, at the battlefield doing his duty as a soldier of the king. And so what to do? So David uses his power as king to bring back his subordinate to cover up the sin of David. That's a pretty dishonorable thing to do. Dishonest, dishonorable. But he does it. Send me Uriah the Hittites. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and Uriah said, came to him, and David asked uh, how Joab was doing and how the people fared and how the war prospered. He's not going to get into what he's, his real purpose of bringing him back. Not at all. He tells, spreads some stuff around here to make it uh, look like this is the reason. So he's really deceiving Uriah there. He's pretends he's bringing him back to give a report on the battles. And he asks about that, but that's not really what he's interested in. You know, he's just sort of throwing in all this extra stuff to, uh, to hide the real thing, the real purpose. Whenever people do that, we know something's not right. What is the real purpose? of bringing him back. And we know what it is, though Uriah doesn't. Although maybe Uriah does. I re remember reading someone commenting on this saying, maybe he knew what was going on. It may be that I think it's my assumption has always been that when he stays faithfully at the, with the servants of the Lord at the gate and does not go down, it's always because uh, you know, he's an honorable man. Another way of reading it is that he knows exactly what David is doing and he doesn't want to help provide an excuse for David, but we don't know. So David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. And what was the purpose of that present? Because he cared about Uriah? No. Everything David does now is dishonest and dishonorable. 
Maybe that's the message of this passage. What is it to be honorable or dishonorable? To live with integrity or to be kind of tricky so that the words that are said, the words of David are not what he really means. His actions are not what he really means. He didn't bring him back to find out about the war. It's deceiving. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. But Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But, it's always good to look at but in any passage from scripture. Remember the, the uh, warriors are out fighting the battles of the king, but David stayed in Jerusalem. And so David sends Uriah, go to your house, here's a present, there you are. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So there goes the plan to cover up. Uriah, for whatever reason, because he's an honorable man, maybe, it's been suggested maybe because he knows what, that David's using him, but whatever it is, because I think it is because he's an honorable man, he's sleeping there with the guard, he's not doing what David says. So David tries again. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Again, persuasive and deceitful. He doesn't care about Uriah coming from a journey. False, you know, you can smile and smile and be a villain. That's very true. And this is the great David. It's remarkable that the sacred writers told this brutal story about the greatest of the kings of Israel. Why did you not go down to your house? So here we have the king, the greatest of kings, David himself, the young man who was slaying Goliath, the one who was warrior and king and the spirit of God was upon him, exalted in so many ways. And yet he had begun to become complacent. You know, the corruption of the best is the worst. This great sacred leader of the people has become corrupt. And so he is the noble king who is corrupt and Uriah is a Hittite. He's not even part of the chosen people. He's a foreigner. This is like the good Samaritan in the New Testament. He is not even not only is he not the king, he's not even one of the chosen people. And we see the comparison. The great king is corrupt, lying, conniving, deceitful, lustful, manipulative, lazy, all that. And we see this, the light shining. And we should ask ourselves, as we see these two people, the king who should have been an example to his servant, Uriah, 
and Uriah, who really was an example to his king. This is an honorable person. And it makes David look all the worse and reveals of the blinding light of honor, goodness, truth, integrity, integrity, to be not split up like David with his real motivation, which is lust and deceit, and his false motivation, he's pretending, caring for Uriah. That's to be a fraction. Uriah is not divided. He doesn't have many levels of motivation. He simply wants to do his duty. And he cannot imagine going down and enjoying himself when his comrades are in the field. And also the Ark of the Covenant. So he is, has a deeper faith than David. Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He's a good man. This is speaking truth to power. I will not do this thing. He will follow not simply the whim and the manipulation, which he may well see through, we don't know. He will not follow the manipulation and the dishonorable orders he's receiving from and invitations he's receiving from David. He will do his duty. I remember my favorite hymn, O God Beyond All Praising, has a, it's a wonderful line about duty. Duty's not a dry thing. It's not a grim thing. It's a beautiful thing. Not grim, but joyful. And there's a great line that says, and make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. I think that speaks to Uriah. In a sense, I keep thinking of a movie I saw once about the two kings back in the 1930s, the, the King's Speech, where you see the David figure, it was actually, he was called David, uh, the David figure, uh, Edward VIII, is sort of uh, maneuvering around, but the Uriah figure is, who actually though was not killed, but turned out to be the next king, is the one who has a sense of his duty. And that's always better. So David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. So David tries again, he tries to get him drunk. He does get him drunk. But Uriah's sense of duty is greater than that. Even with that, he will not go down to his house. He will do his duty. So all the maneuvering of David, useless. So he has him killed. There we are. He tried to cover up and that didn't work, so he kills him. This reminds me of, a, of an interesting observation where Jordan Peterson made at a talk I once went to it's similar in some ways, that Cain and Abel, you know, Abel, the good brother, and Cain, the bad brother, and Abel's sacrifice was offered and was accepted by God, and Cain's was offered and was not. So you'd think Cain would say to Abel, how can I do better? Teach me. Instead, he killed him. So 
even a good person, I mean, even you might see, he didn't order him killed at the start, but, but now he does. He just has him, and he doesn't even take a sword and kill him. He continues to manipulate, but what he's manipulating is the death of an honorable man. It's not much in the Bible that's as sordid as this story. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He's going to actually have Uriah bring his own death warrant to Joab, the general. That's a really dirty thing. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was slain also. Little news report there. Oh, oh, Uriah the Hittite was slain. Well, we know why he was slain, because Joab had it done. So we see something else. David's corrupt. Joab's corrupt too. The general in the field is told to, here's this man he knows to be an honorable man. He's carrying the very message back from the king. He's ordered by the king to have one of his soldiers killed basically in a tricky way by the enemy, but, but really killed by David through Joab, manipulating him. And Joab doesn't seem to protest at all. Just following orders, I guess, just following orders. We've heard that before. Recently, I've been looking at some things on the Nuremberg trials. Just following orders. That's uh, the, the, the leader says do this and people did it. Well, they were pretty implicit and implicated in it. And so Uriah was slain also. And Joab reports back. And he knows, first of all, David might well criticize him for having some soldiers killed, like for, for not, why would you bring soldiers right up to the wall of the, the city? It's where they're gonna get killed there. Ah, tell him, that's how I did your, followed your dishonorable orders. So Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, and then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone upon him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So that silences criticism. He knows what David wants. He wants Uriah killed. Uriah, this honorable man. That's gonna make David happy. If he thinks, why did you have so many of your soldiers killed? And Uriah the Hittite is dead. How twisted we can get. David is twisted, maneuvering, lying. 
using false invitations and kindness and presence to corrupt an honest man. And Joab, he knows how to play to the boss and how to, if the boss is angry at all these soldiers being killed, just tell him Uriah was one of them and all will be well. The whole thing is corrupt. It's a kind of an infection and it can happen. It can spread, not just physical infections, but moral. We can kind of let it get out of control. And I think that maybe is why, I think Bishop Sheen had a very wise statement when he said, the thing to do if you have a box full of pepper, fill the box with salt so there's no room for the pepper. The sin can magnify, it can spread. One leads to another, to another. Within David, one thing led to another and another, it spread and spread and spread, and then goes to Joab, and Joab begins to be corrupt, and getting one of his soldiers killed and not saying no to this dishonest, dishonorable order. Sin spreads. Goodness can do that too. That's why we canonize saints, so that we can learn from them. And even before they're canonized, they can, their goodness can influence others. But we need to be fundamentally honorable and repent of those things within us that smack of David or Joab in their dishonesty and learn from the integrity of, of Uriah. It's all corrupt and it's not hard to get there. So the messenger went, he didn't even wait when he goes, he, the messenger went and he came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And he didn't wait for David. David, the messenger's now corrupt too. He didn't even wait for David to yell at him for having, uh, why did Joab have people killed near the wall? He knew that the way to sort of disarm the anger of David was say Uriah was killed. So now the messenger knows about this too. And he's manipulating David and Joab's doing that. And David's manipulating Uriah and Joab. It's, it's a corrupt mess. So the messenger went, he came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and they came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. We're so courageous. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Why on earth did he mention his name? The messenger knows what's going on. He knows this is a murder ordered by the king, by the hand of the enemy, with the complicity of Joab. So David is a happy man. He thinks he's got it covered up. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack upon the city and overthrow it and encourage him. That's really dishonest. 
you know, everything, these things happen in war, people get killed, including Uriah the Hittite. He knows he had this man assassinated or murdered. And yet he uses these words. And then the wife of Uriah the, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, and she made lamentations for her husband. We can hope that she knew that she had lost a good man, a good husband. We don't know much about Bathsheba in this, what her motivations are. Later on, we do a bit more. She made lamentation for her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. Always David is there using his power as he did before and sent and had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. So there we are. And then the final line, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The mills of the Lord grind slowly, but they grind exceeding fine. All this is going on. Even with David, of all people, such a remarkable man, so graced by God. And he goes down, down, down. What will happen? Well, the next chapter, Nathan tells a story. Nathan knows David too, because the Lord says to Nathan the prophet, you go and speak truth to power. And of course, Nathan could have said, you committed adultery and you had Uriah killed. That would have, he would have been probably executed before he got a few sentences out. So instead he tells a story about there was a poor man who had a little lamb and then the rich man came and took it. And, and we see in the next chapter, which we're not gonna be doing at Lexa Divina, we see how a story can disarm. David is not gonna accuse himself of his absolutely wicked crimes of this chapter. But if he can see another person in a parable, in a story doing bad things, he can see clearly the sins of someone else. So Nathan tells a story about a rich man being bad to a weak and poor man. And David says, this is not right. That man, that rich man, that powerful man must be punished for doing that. He has very good judgment when it's somebody else. And then the great line that brings an end to this chapter and Nathan says, you are the man. And suddenly the scales fall from David's eyes. And it is said that that led to the great Psalm, the miserere, have mercy on me, O God, in your kindness and your compassion blot out my offense. And that Psalm is prayed every morning, morning prayer. David was a great sinner and David was a great repenter, and he had reason to repent. Oh my, we learned so much. So let's just uh, reflect on this. See how it applies in our own situation. 
In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking up on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then he re she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am with child. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people fared and how the war prospered. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow. I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord and he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of that city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was slain also. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting and to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone upon him from the wall so that he died at Tebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 
The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall and some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So David said to the messenger, oh, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack upon the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband was dead, she made lamentation for her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.